Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Democracy Now!, Counterspin, Ring of Fire, and The Tom Hartman Show. Be sure to stick around at the very end of the show for a huge announcement I've got for you. I did want to start with torture. And I just think that this is tremendous news. Uh, and, of course, I'm afraid that your people are going to gloss over it as usual. Uh, we found out the manual that uh, we were using in Guantanamo Bay and then eventually in Iraq and Abu Ghraib and, Gu- and Afghanistan that led to all the detainee abuse, otherwise known as torture. And it is a 1957 document, um, and it is... Turns out we have found an original source for it. We thought it was from uh, SERE, which is our Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape, uh, that we teach our own soldiers uh, in case they get captured and they're going to get tortured. Uh, well, that is true, but it turns out it comes from somewhere else uh, to SERE. Uh, where it comes from is a Chinese communist manual on how to torture people. Um, and we got this in 1957 and turned it into a document on how to ov- survive Chinese torture. So we forgot its original origins, and we didn't went down to Guantanamo. In fact, they took the exact document. They removed the title, which was, you know, basically Chinese torture system, and they taught it to the interrogators, to the American interrogators, down in Guantanamo Bay, and then it spread, like I said, to Iraq and Afghanistan. We have been torturing people with the ways that we were trying to avoid in the first place from the communist Chinese, the way that they were torturing people. And get a load of this. This is a very, very important twist to it. The point of the Chinese torture was not to elicit correct information. It was to elicit false confessions. They wanted to capture our soldiers, and when they did, uh, they wanted to torture them to the point where they would say America is, you know, terrible, and the Chinese are right, and we wish the whole uh, world ran on communists. They knew that the American soldiers didn't believe that, or any soldiers that they had captured, but they wanted to devise a torture system that would purposely give them false intelligence or false confessions. That's the system we put in place. And by the way, we did get false intelligence from it. We, we nearly buried someone alive, and he told us, oh, yeah, yeah, what do you need to know? You want to know that Iraq and 9-11 are correct, connected? Yes, they're connected. Later, we found out that that information was false, but we shouldn't be surprised because we used torture tactics that the Chinese communists used to, in essence, particularly, not in essence, completely, to get false information. This is unbelievable and outrageous. And now here's the thing. We knew it was torture, but this makes it crystal clear. It is indisputable. We literally took it right from a document that said how you torture people, and it was written originally by the Chinese, who again, let me repeat for the eighth time, were communists. So it's become circular, where we've come around and become the things that we despised. We've become our worst enemies. I mean... And now, how can the Republicans, knowing where this document came from, possibly still deny that we tortured people? But they will. And the Rush Limbaugh's of the world will say, oh, it was just a bunch of frat boy pranks and uh, no big deal. 
And when the Chinese did it to us, we were like, ah, torture, unacceptable. How could they possibly do this? Man, now here's the thing. Are they going to let people get away with this? Number one, laws have clearly been broken. The president authorized illegal torture. It's illegal, not under international law. It is under international law as well. But more importantly in this case, under U.S. law. It's the War Crimes Act of 1996. Is anyone going to be punished for ordering torture on the Native America and breaking our federal laws? You know the answer to that. I know the answer to that. There's no way, because the Democrats are the weakest, worst party in American history, and they would never dare challenge the president on something as absolutely positively clear as this. I mean, date impeach Clinton over oral sex? We're torturing people left and right, and we've absolutely sullied the name of America throughout the world, and we've become despised because of George Bush and his torture tactics that he borrowed from the communists in 1957, and no one is going to get punished for it. Now, but here's the thing. We're in the middle of a presidential campaign right now, and John McCain voted to allow the CIA to continue doing this. Now, you've got to ask John McCain, wait a minute now, hold on now. Senator McCain, you were tortured, perhaps using these same exact techniques at different times. How could you possibly authorize the CIA to do this? Now, his usual answer is, oh no, I don't accept that it's torture. But we have the document. It's word for word. It comes from the communists that tortured you. And it's called the torture method. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. There's no dispute. Somebody needs to challenge John McCain frontally on this. You think it'll be our press? <laughs> I mean, seriously, though, seriously, doesn't that boil your blood? Doesn't that make you angry? That our press is so incompetent, so, you know, slavish to authority, that they would never even bring this most obvious point up to John McCain. What is the matter with them? How many of the American people right now know that John McCain authorized the CIA to torture people, voted in favor of that? Less than 1%. In fact, if you ask them, I guarantee you, a great majority will think the exact opposite. Because all we ever hear in the mythology that the mainstream press puts out in America is, John McCain is a war hero, POW was tortured. Now that stuff is true. So, But then you get the sense that, oh no, then John McCain's clearly against torture. And when he actually, and then in the beginning, as far as the armies and the armed uh, forces are concerned, he did fight against torture. And when he did, the press blew that up. Oh, McCain, Maverick, fighting against Bush, fighting against torture. Oh, what a great guy, McCain. But then when he quietly voted to allow the CIA to do the same thing, shush, the American people are not allowed to know that. Why not? Why not?
between 100,000 and 300,000 barrels a day of Iraq's declared oil production over the past four years is unaccounted for and could have been siphoned off through corruption or smuggling. These are the findings of a draft report by the U.S. Government Accountability Office obtained by the New York Times. The news comes as the Iraqi parliament is preparing to vote on a new law that would open up Iraq's oil reserves to multinational oil companies. Our first guest today, Prothap Chatterjee, has closely monitored the Iraqi oil industry. He's the managing director of CorpWatch and author of the book Iraq, Inc. He's also just published a new report on Halliburton called Goodbye, Houston. Prothop joins us in Houston, Texas, where Halliburton is preparing to hold its annual shareholders meeting on Wednesday. This year's shareholders meeting is the company's last in Texas before moving headquarters to Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. Welcome to Democracy Now! Prothop. Amy, thank you for having me. Um, it's good to have you with us. The subtitle of your report, Goodbye Houston, is Conflict, Climate Change and Catastrophe, an Alternative Annual Report on Halliburton. Talk about the meeting tomorrow and your preparations. Amy, uh, Halliburton makes its money out of two primary industries, the oil industry and the occupation of Iraq. Today, in fact, in the last four, perhaps a little over four years, it's made over $20 billion uh, from the uh, providing military support in Iraq, uh, building bases, cleaning toilets, uh, um, providing food, to the soldiers, as well as uh, being given money to fix the oil infrastructure in Iraq, which they have actually failed to do. In fact, Iraq's oil infrastructure is in a, s a sad shambles, and partly it's Halliburton, and it's, uh, there's another company from Pasadena, California, which is called Parsons. Neither of them have repaired the infrastructure, and in fact, today, one of the reasons, Amy, you mentioned that up to uh, 300,000 barrels of oil are going missing every day, a lot of this is because the oil metering, which is really actually quite a simple business, has not been done. In four years, they have failed to, to repair and failed to calibrate the oil meters on the platforms. They've just finished repairing it, but I've talked to folks here in Houston. This is a very common and normal uh, industry practice to set up meters, even the most complex meters take no more than a year to set up, and yet they have not been ca calibrated. And so oil is being stolen right under the noses of U.S. Uh, officials from the oil platforms out in the Arabian Gulf. Now, Halliburton, which is also required, was asked to fix the oil infrastructure, such as the pipelines that run from Kirkuk to Beijing uh, to supply the refineries, have done a terrible job. And this is one of the big problems uh, that uh, Halliburton is facing today with its subsidiary, Kellogg, Brown & Root. They're actually spinning off this uh, particular part of the company because it's not doing very well because they want to focus in where they make their money, which is the oil and gas industry and other places such as Africa and the Middle East. And in fact, David Lessard, the CEO of Halliburton, will be leaving right after the meeting. He'll be going to Sheikh Zayed Road in Dubai to set up offices there because that's where they hope to make their profit, is out of the oil and gas industry. The question we're raising is what will this mean in terms of the tax revenue to the United States? Halliburton had to pay an extra billion dollars in taxes this year. When they move to Dubai, will they pay taxes? Certainly, David Lessard, the CEO, will not have to pay taxes because it's a tax haven. So it means a lot less money for the United States and for taxpayers. And so on the one hand, when they get $20 billion in taxpayer money to spend in Iraq, they are not paying taxes just like you and I might have to do every April 15th.
What does it mean for criminal liability for the company to move? These are good questions. So far, actually, six managers and suppliers have been indicted, and some of them have gone to jail. Not all of them have gone to jail. And one, for example, one person who is, uh, who is uh, actually named by the Department of Justice as having absconded with money, his name is Ali Hijazi, and he's in Kuwait. And I actually spoke to him in, uh, in January when I was in Kuwait because he, as I understand, is not required, and there is no extradition treaty that can require him to come back to the United States. So in the future, if there is any problem and there are officials that are charged and they're in Dubai, because Dubai has no extradition treaty, I'm not suggesting that they are in fact criminally liable, but if they are, they can actually stay there and not have to leave, just as Ali Hijazi can stay in Kuwait without being brought before justice to decide whether or not they have been involved in criminal activity. So these are issues, these are serious issues. We don't know uh, whether anybody has stolen money for sure, but should that happen, it may make it complicated. You talk about public interest data stamp proprietary. Amy, uh, normally when companies get business with the United States, they have to submit, this documentation is available to us journalists, the general media, through Freedom of Information Acts. Halliburton is has actually stamped almost every page of its documentation as proprietary. The reason they say that is because if, if the public gets hold of it, it will represent a threat to their business because their business secrets might be exposed and they would not get contracts uh, if, let's say, a rival company such as a Bechtel or Floor or Parsons bids against them. Now, the problem is, and we saw this actually last year when Henry Waxman uncovered one of the documents that was stamped proprietary and they required that the public not see, was all the information that they have had redacted has been the information that, uh, in fact, shows that the, the, the military is questioning a lot of their costs. $2.7 billion, and this is $2.7 billion out of $20 billion, are in, in question and unsupported costs have been raised by military orders. Now, we don't know if all of this money has disappeared. Some of it may simply be missing receipts. But all that money being questioned, you cannot, we as the public and the taxpayer cannot find out about because Halliburton has said this represents important uh, data that if their rivals see it, could win contracts. And this to me seems like a little bit of a problem because if, if there is money that's missing, the public needs to know. And in fact, if it is a business uh, secret, then we will have no way of judging whether or not the contract should go to somebody who is more competent and less likely to, uh, to overcharge. And, and the, these are some of the biggest charges against Halliburton has been the fact that there's been overcharging, there's been waste, uh, as well as fraud. And so uh, there are several lawsuits that have been launched. There's a lawsuit by Julie McBride, for example, who has charged the company has been overcharging uh, for provision of food. There, there are serious lawsuits by truck drivers that were lodged here in the city of Houston who say that the company didn't provide them with adequate security. Now, that case has been thrown out of court, but it's on appeal now. So these are the issues that Halliburton will have to uh, address, and, and they are trying to avoid today.
Joining us now to discuss the impeachment of George W. Bush is Elizabeth de la Vega, a former federal prosecutor and author of The United States versus George W. Bush et al. She writes regularly for Truth Out, Public Record, Tom Dispatch, along with other outlets. Welcome back to Counterspin, Elizabeth de la Vega. Well, thanks for having me, Denise. Well, some of the press coverage was just trivializing. NPR host Rachel Martin said, quote, And most of Kucinich's resolution, I mean, he accused Bush of, you know, using false justification for the war in Iraq, breaking international law in the course of that invasion, failing to provide troops with proper equipment, and on and on and on, close quote. And her co-hosts laughed because listing lots of crimes is just funny, I suppose. And they all moved on to a story about blackjack dealers. That's been one strain of coverage. But some of the more serious stories used terms this was a parliamentary maneuver that Kucinich was forcing on the Congress, terms that made it sound like the process was something ad hoc or legally bizarre. Legally, is there anything extra official or odd about calling for impeachment of a president in the way that Representative Kucinich did? No, not at all. In fact, far from being odd, it's actually the sworn duty of Congress members under the Constitution to bring articles of impeachment if there are high crimes and misdemeanors. The process of impeachment is mentioned six times in the United States Constitution. It's the main and really the only way of holding the chief executive accountable for serious abuses of power that go to the governance of the country, which are precisely what are laid out in what I think are absolutely riveting form in the 35 Articles of Impeachment. Well, let's talk about the substance, which most corporate media seem to sort of simply set aside. Uh, Law professor Jonathan Turley was on MSNBC, and he said that while he thought some of the claims were not really impeachable offenses, plenty of them were. He called it a target-rich environment, and even added that it must take a real effort for Democrats to walk from the floor to their offices and not trip over crimes. What, to your mind, are some of the most significant items here that make impeachment warranted? The first five or six articles relate to the fraud in connection with the Iraq war. The first one sets out the fact that the Bush administration orchestrated and created a huge propaganda campaign, which in and of itself is illegal. It's illegal for the executive branch to use funds that are appropriated to essentially sell its programs. So that in and of itself is illegal. And then what they did was they lied. So to me, and this is basically what I lay out in my book as well, they have committed a conspiracy to defraud the United States. And it is a vast conspiracy. And the word conspiracy, by the way, is just a neutral word that explains the fact of a crime, which is an agreement to defraud the people and Congress of the U.S. So I think that that really is the central and the most major violation that we have here. And for people to laugh about that when it's not only the fact of its having been committed, but we have really literally millions of victims of this crime in the United States and in Iraq, of course. So I don't understand how people can look at this and say that this is something to scoff at. I don't think they would scoff at any other crime being committed right in front of their very eyes. And yet that's exactly what the press is doing. Well, lots of media attention seems to have focused on whether it's fair to say that Bush lied because maybe he actually believed what he was saying? Is all this focus on what was in Bush's mind and we, whether we call it a lie? Is, is that germane, really, legally? Well, a statement has to be intentionally made with knowledge that it's false in order to be a lie. But uh, there are two points to be made about that. 
First is that there are many ways to deceive, and lying is only one of them. And around the country every day, people are charged with fraud, which includes making statements recklessly without any regard to whether you know it's true or not. But as to the term lying, if people, and I'm not sure how many reporters have taken the time to actually read the Phase 2 report, but the information that's laid out there, which we've actually known about for years, sets forth many clear examples. And one egregious one is that when Bush and Cheney were telling the public over and over and over again that Iraq posed a threat and that Saddam Hussein would like nothing more than to hook up with terrorists and attack the U.S., he was being specifically told in every report by every different agency that Saddam Hussein had no intention of attacking the United States and would only end up doing so if he were himself attacked. So it's not a question of things being shades of gray. It was black and white. He was saying Saddam Hussein wanted to attack us. The intelligence people were saying, no, he does not. That's a lie. Well, what then, if anything, do you make of serious media's refusal to take this seriously? It, is, it isn't as though we didn't see barrels of ink devoted to impeaching Bill Clinton over violations of what I think anyone would have to acknowledge were, was an entirely different order. Now the very process seems to be uh, silly on its face to many reporters. Right. I think that there seems to be this Washington mindset, the inside the beltway mindset that impeachment, even for those who, who believe that the president has committed crimes, that impeachment is a waste of time, that the focus needs to be on the upcoming election. And I really think that the fact that it's been ignored could almost be interpreted as a sign of how strong these arguments are. Because if you actually address them, you really have no choice but to conclude that Congress needs to go forward and hold the president accountable for what he's done. So the only solution on the part of the press and Congress, apparently, is to just act as if it's not happening. It's almost as though the story is too big. Well, well, finally, and this, you've kind of touched on this, but there seems to be this sense that because House Speaker Pelosi has declared impeachment off the table, that this is really a pointless exercise. But I wonder if you think there's a value to calling for impeachment, even if you are fairly certain that it's not going to happen. What is the value of, of, of doing it in any event? Oh, there are numerous benefits to it and really imperatives for doing it. One is that in the world today, the United States is seen practically as a pariah, and it is very clear to people in the world that many in power are completely ignoring all of these egregious violations. So, number one, it sends a message to the world that there are at least some serious people who take this as something that needs to be addressed. And second, what kind of message are we sending to our younger generation that here we have overwhelming information? that the president has committed all these violations and nobody wants to do anything about it. I think that we need to make it very clear that people are held accountable for wrongdoing and that no person is above the law. So to make that statement alone is, is worth it. We've been speaking with Elizabeth de la Vega. She's author of The United States versus George W. Bush et al. Thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me. When the president talks to God, are the conversations brief or long? Does he ask to rape our women's rights and send poor farm kids off to die? Does God suggest an oil hike when the president talks to God? When the president 
talks to God, are the consonants all hard or soft? Is he resolute all down the line? Is every issue black or white? Does what God say ever change his mind when the president talks to God? When the president talks to God, does he fake that drawl or merely nod? Agree which convicts should be killed, where prisons should be built and filled. Which voter fraud must be concealed when the president talks to God. When the president talks to God, I wonder which one plays the better cop. We should find some jobs, the ghetto's broke. No, they're lazy, George, I say we don't Just give them more liquor stores and dirty coke That's what God recommends When the president talks to God Do they drink near beer and go play golf While they pick which countries to invade Which Muslim souls still can be saved I guess God just calls a spade a spade When the president talks to God When the president talks to God, does he ever think that maybe he's not? That that voice is just inside his head when he kneels next to the presidential bed? Does he ever smell his own bullshit when the president talks to God? I doubt it. I doubt it. Eric Prince took millions of dollars that daddy left him. He cut a deal with Dick Cheney and was awarded the right to become America's new unofficial army. Cheney and the GOP leadership has made sure that this spooky private army called Blackwater remains loyal to them by giving them contracts that today exceed half a billion dollars. This is a global private mercenary army that has its own aircraft, its own tanks, and its own munition stashes that rival the armies of many third world countries. They're mercenary soldiers who are beholden to the far right leadership that pays those soldiers almost $1,000 a day to do the exact work that pays official U.S. soldiers about $70 a day. Blackwater brags that its ranks have grown to 25,000 strong and it's becoming a military machine that's actively replacing parts of America's army around the world. Blackwater doesn't fall under U.S. court-martial law when they break the law, and they argue that they can't be sued or they can't be prosecuted under traditional criminal and civil statutes in the U.S. In other words, they operate in the dark, out of the reach of anybody's law. And as you listen to this broadcast, they're actually focusing their efforts to build a purely domestic division of their private mercenary army that's going to be used on U.S. soil to replace the role of U.S. National Guards. Follow the money on this story, and you'll see the same GOP lunatics that have spied on us, they've tapped our phones, they've read our mail, the same conservative lunatics who've made torture an American standard and lied their way into a disastrous desert war. Well, they're the ones quietly building this mercenary Blackwater spook operation army. And if you think you're a little uncomfortable with 25,000-plus mercenary soldiers all dressed up in ninja black with cutting-edge weaponry kicking around your neighborhood will stand by because by the time we get to the next presidential election, 
that number will be closer to 50,000 mercenary Eric Prince soldiers loyal to the people who signed their paychecks and them alone. A permanent grand old party army. the Rwandan Genocide Museum that he just visited in Africa. And he has this amazing quote. Now it's quick. We're going to play you the audio of it. Listen, and then I'll reread it to you so you get a full sense of how incredibly ironic this quote is. Listen. A clear lesson I learned in uh, the museum was that outside forces tend to divide people up inside their country are unbelievably counterproductive. Understand what he's saying? He's saying, oh, the reason we can't go into Darfur is outside forces are counterproductive. And that's, and I learned that given what happened in Rwanda. First of all, no outside forces went into Rwanda. That was the problem. We let him, let the genocide happen and we didn't go in. But forget that, you know, piece of, that he totally screwed up. He's making excuses for not going into Darfur. Now, think about Iraq as I read you the quote again. A clear lesson I learned in the museum was that outside forces that tend to divide people up inside their country are unbelievably counterproductive. Isn't it? I would think that you'd learn that lesson not inside the museum, but inside Iraq. But, apparently, you haven't learned that lesson at all, because you want to continue uh, <laughs> to come in 
and, and, and to stay in Iraq, and stay in Iraq for as long as humanly possible. See, there's a constant debate, and I had a debate with one of our listeners on email about this uh, just last night, a small back and forth, about whether Bush is stupid or he's a genius for appearing to be stupid and putting the blame on everybody else. But this is evidence, you know, 3,828, that he's not that bright. You see, how can you say this knowing what you did in Iraq? If you're a smart president, you would frame it in a different way. This is terrible framing for you. You know what? I'm going to give you the full quote. There's another sentence. Okay, let me read you the quote again. Now, and think whether a smart person would have said this knowing that his entire legacy is us going inside Iraq and screwing it up. Okay, here we go. A clear lesson I learned in the museum was that outside forces that tend to divide people up inside their country are unbelievably counterproductive. In other words, people came from other countries, I guess you'd call them colonialists, and they pitted one group of people against another. Like perhaps the Shiites versus the Sunnis in Iraq? No, that no, I'm sure that doesn't apply at all. How do you not see that we would take this quote and apply it to Iraq? Uh, he's an idiot. There's no arguing that this guy is, has any sense to him whatsoever, or any smarts, or any intelligence. But inadvertently, he told the truth here. This show is produced with the help of the members of the Best of the Left community. You too can be a part of the show, and we would love your help. You can submit information about great clips you've heard, volunteer to help edit these clips for the show, or actually become an occasional guest producer. For more information, please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com. David Horowitz, why do you want more of our students to be terrified? <laughs> it seems like you're spreading terror on our campuses. It's a, a good question. Look, um, I think that, that there is a lack of appreciation for how dangerous the situation is that we're in. Here we had um, a bunch of guys uh, from... Uh, the uh, Albania Kosovo region um, training in the Poconos uh, to kill a hundred uh, servicemen. That, that that they were Al Qaeda followers. Uh, we have such porous borders. They they were overstayed visas. Nobody's checking. Uh, the only reason they were caught was because they videoed themselves training. Um, and uh, brought it into a video store to be developed, and actually the clerk was worried that they might be accused of discrimination if they 
um, reported them, but they did. But David, this them. isn't the only one. I mean, they're 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 they're, they're all over the place. Down in te- down in Austin, Texas, just a couple of weeks ago, oh. you had a guy who was who was caught within an hour. The bomb would have detonated. It would have killed a lot of people. I mean, it was just a exactly. massive thing. Exactly. Yeah, this, the second the... largest terrorist incident in the United States was was Tim McVeigh. I mean, these are Christian terrorists in the no, United no, States. No, 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 no. Hold on a second. Look, this is ridiculous. You don't. You know, no, it's not ridiculous. Oh, it's totally ridiculous. And, and I, I wanted to, what you're trying to do is foment fear and hatred of Muslims. Look, if I say uh, black people have no problems in this country because Oprah Winfrey is the richest woman in America, I have a hundred leftists get up in the audience and say, you know, that's an, you can't prove the rule by what by the exception. Um, Look, and that's exactly what you're problem. trying to do. You're trying to prove the rule by the exception. You've got some idiots out in California who are who, are, who put together an incompetent plan, we and you want to run around and, and, and make it politically correct on campuses have to have this be the only thing that's discussed. We have a global, we have a global religious movement, which includes at the minimum, if only at the minimum 150 million people but more likely 500 million people who want us dead and believe they will get to heaven if they kill us no this is, big... that's a that's a that's a massive wild outrageous overstatement david horowitz and you know it there are not hundreds of millions of people of who want there, us are. Dead. there are hundreds of millions of people who time. want us out of their country tom the they want us out of their country. David, if Canada and Mexico had invaded the United States, would you join me in taking up arms against them? That's why they saw people's heads off. If Canada and Mexico invaded the United States, would you join me in taking up arms against them? If who invaded the United States? Canada and Mexico. We didn't invade anybody. Look, if look, 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 look. Just go, you don't... The basic problem, this is what, what leftists don't understand. You guys are going to get beheaded first anyway. These people mean We should all be afraid, they, be very afraid. Mean what they say. They've been saying it for decades. They, they, they are religious fanatics who believe that killing anybody, children, women, it doesn't matter, will get them to heaven. That's what they believe. And That's we are driving they, that behavior. We are their recruiters. Osama bin Laden had 20,000 followers, David. 20,000 followers Osama bin Laden had before George Bush turned him into a rock star. Whether you take a poll from CNN uh, or Al Jazeera, it's somewhere between 10% and 50% of Muslims think Osama bin Laden is a hero. That is computes 10% would be 150 million people, 50% would be 750 million people. There's a lot of people abroad and in America who are lunatic religious fanatics. You are absolutely right. You are absolutely right. And you are absolutely right that they're doing that because of this Republican war against Iraq and the ongoing occupation of it. That's completely idiotic. They were chanting death to America in 1979. People were chanting death to America in 1849 during the Spanish-American War. These are, these were, you're talking small incidents back then. It has become a large incident ever since this Republican war in Iraq. Close your mind. Close your eyes, see with your heart. How do you forgive the murderer of your father? The ink of a scholar is worth a thousand times more than the blood of a martyr. Uh, Terrorists. Yeah.
I was watching Senator Mitch McConnell this weekend on uh, on CNN uh, saying that it's outrageous that the Iraqi government has yet to uh, move on, that the um, that the parliament there has uh, yet to vote on the new law that would open up the country to multilateral, multinational oil companies. What about that law? 
Well, Amy, the fact that the parliament has started to discuss this oil law is a good thing. I mean, the public should be able to debate an oil law. Remember, this oil law was drafted in secret. Uh, I met one of the men working on it, Ronald Junkers, from a company called Bearing Point. And they have worked, you know, in the green zone in Baghdad to draft a law and hand it over to uh, Iraqi lawmakers. And the Bush administration has put pressure on them to sign it by this May because they want it to go forward as one of the benchmarks for the U.S. to withdraw. And the law as it's drafted, it's a terrible law. It's, very, it's, it's designed to try and please everybody and pleases nobody at all. And in fact, it is particularly uh, intended to please multinational oil companies. Iraq needs a lot of money in, in order to be able to develop its oil fields. They talk about in the region of $100 billion. And so in order to get it, they say the only possibility is to get it from the oil companies. And therefore, they are, requ they are requiring in the oil law that uh, long-term leases be signed with oil companies from outside the country. Now, Iraqi oil unions oppose this law. A lot of Iraqi parliamentarians oppose this law because they see it as giving up their state assets to f uh, foreign companies. The, the reality of this law is that it leaves very little room for negotiation, which is critical in these laws. I mean, take the case of Bolivia recently. Bolivia recently renegotiated its oil leases with oil companies in order to ensure that more income comes to the people as opposed to just out to foreign oil companies. And that's really critical that this law be debated as opposed to be rammed through, written by a company like Bearing Point, and rammed through without much discussion. So it is, in fact, flawed in any way, you see, because of the way the control is divided up between the different regions and the central government. Everybody is unhappy with it. And so it looks unlikely to get passed unless there's complete pressure by the U.S. government, which is why there's so much resistance. Take my feelings back and I hope that you'll be with me. I 
for punishment And one thing is for sure And that's what someone always said Darling, you can bet I'm on this crowd The opposite So baby, take an axe to your makeup kit Set up place the pimples in the advertisement Love with all the eyes and never forget How good it feels to be alive And strive for your desire Because you can't see your case Doesn't mean that you are free When it lies against nature But it's okay for you to be Addicted to over-the-counter prescriptions Or magazines dictated all about human relations George Tennant, in 60 Minutes, former CIA head, talking to Scott Pelley. And he said a lot of interesting things. We broke a lot of it down for you yesterday. The more I think about it, the angrier I get at Tennant and what a punk he is. But anyway, let's save that for the moment being. Let's let's do his torture clips here. Because, I mean, these are so telling, so telling. And it, it not only tells you whether we did torture, but it tells you what a clown Tennant is. Uh, here he is talking to Scott Pelley about torture. You know, the image that's been portrayed is, is we sat around the campfire and said, oh boy, now we go get to torture people. Well, we don't torture people. Let me say that again to you. We don't torture people. Okay. Come on, so, George. We don't torture people. College Sheikh Mohammed. We don't torture people. Waterboarding. We do not. I don't talk torture. about techniques and we don't torture people. Now, listen to, now, listen to me. I want you to listen to me. So the context is it's post 9-11. I've got reports of nuclear weapons in New York City, apartment buildings that are going to be blown up, planes that are going to fly into air for, air, airports all over again, plot lines that I don't know. I don't know what's going on inside the United States, and I'm struggling to find out where the next disaster is going to occur. Everybody forgets one central context of what we live through. The palpable fear that we felt on the basis of the fact that there was so much we did not know. So, so you did torture people. What kind of answer is that, man? I mean, it's as clear as day. Yeah, we do not torture people. You do not torture. We were under tremendous pressure, Scott. And we did not know things, and we had to know it. So that's why we tortured them. You won. You're bragging about not knowing anything. Right. Bla- bragging about it. No. No, Ben. We do not torture people. We do. Uh, let me say it again. We do not torture people. Now, let me tell you why we did it. <laughs> And then there was two great lines in there. Damn, I've heard one was Scott Pelley saying, come on, George. Come on, George. <laughs> I'm going to say that to you from every once in a while. Come, come on, on George. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then Tennant had a great line back at him that was very funny. But No. Uh, say, say it. Hey, Seuss has got it. Open up the mic there. No. Well, my favorite part is where he goes, why don't you listen to me? Yeah, right. No, you yeah. listen to me, Scott. That's what it is. Yeah. No, you listen to me, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to use that one for an hour. And he's all moving in the chair, and he's uncomfortable. And Oh, that was the other funny part of the interview that I liked. I mean, here's Tennant. Yeah, Let mo- me tell you something, all right? He's moving around like We Tom. don't torture people. He's moving around like Tom <laughs> Arnold. I'm like, all right, dude, I got it, I got it. And that's the thing I was talking about yesterday. You know, it's the, the man behind the, uh, the curtain. I mean, this guy's a clown. I mean, look, he looked like George Bush there. 
Yeah, you're stuck bit. on that. I, I, I don't, I, I don't get that. I mean, I, I thought he was, I thought it was a revealing interview about George Tenet and about George Bush and Dick Cheney. I mean, I thought, I think we learned a tremendous amount from his piece and this interview, a tremendous amount. Uh, I mean, you know, as always, it's all confirmation of stuff you already believe. No, you listen to me, Ben. <laughs> okay. No, I, the overwhelming sense I got from Tenet, and I, and I know, look, yeah, what he says about Cheney, obviously true, yada, yada, yada. And he really thought there was weapons of mass destruction, et cetera, et cetera, right? But I got a sense of this is a guy who's not who is not on top of it. He's just not on top of it. He doesn't have a grasp of it. He's grasping his straws. He's trying to do his best, and he's and I got a sense of fundamental weakness. Well, I, I t- let me tell you what I got because I got more of what you said yesterday. I didn't get the feeling that he was dumb, and I guess you could extrapolate what we're saying to in a dumb is so extreme that he's not, you know, uh, that he didn't have the. Uh, uh, overwhelming intellectual acumen to handle this type of crisis situation. But I just get the feeling that, you know, you said you could see Cheney coming yesterday, that you would have been able to read Cheney, mm-hmm. like at the poker table, like how you read everybody at the poker table. No, but that's why I'm such a good player. Um, but that he, it didn't, it doesn't, George Tennant is a serious, I think, studious guy who has pretty much one way of doing things. And that involves the teamwork and getting on the same page and fighting things together. And so he is literally, I mean, as that quote that he, that he, that soundbite that he gave about when he found out that they'd leaked the, the slam dunk thing that he says was significantly out of context. Whether it was or wasn't, they, out of context or not, leaking it, they obviously threw him under the bus, right? That, that, but he was literally flummoxed by that. Like, but we're on the same team. What are you talking about? We're buddies. We're fighting this together. This is not, I don't do this. Nobody does this. This is not how we do things. And so, I mean, yeah, you could turn that into, but I just think he's got one sort of way of doing things. He's a football coach, you know, Yeah, he's and he like can't a- imagine that anybody would ever take money to throw the game. No, but, well, that's actually more unimaginable than Dick Cheney throwing you under the bus. But, uh, he he's he's but that's a good analogy. He's like kind of a blustery Mike Tice kind of football coach. Let's go out there and win it out. Yeah. Oh what? Oh well, the assistant coach is trying to take my job. I didn't see that coming. Huh? Why wow, he's talking to the owner? Hmm. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, I'm sure. And and you, ha- I got I got a sense of weakness. And the, here's a guy who can be manipulated, who can be you know pushed in a certain direction. But look, I want to say one more thing about his character before we finish up the torture stuff. Uh, he was, it seemed to me, he was a thousand times more outraged that he was betrayed than that the country was betrayed into going into the Iraq war. Like, he didn't mind go- taking the questionable intelligence and going to the Iraq war and making a mess of it and not fighting al-Qaeda and all that stuff. He, you know, he had some problems with, but not enough problems to be outraged. Yeah, well, but had- when they went for him... That was a break of honor. That was a, a violation of a betrayal of trust. He could not stand. Yeah, that's true. I, I, he did. He definitely reacted strong. He, lo- you know, because he said all a man has is, you know, his honor is his, and his integrity. And he, he said a man. I'm butchering it, but he said like a man only has two things: his honor and his integrity, and his reputation. <laughs> right. Uh, you know. Honor and integrity are supposed to be about what you do. You know, whether you go to the Iraq War, whether you go get Al Qaeda, et cetera. It's not supposed to be about your political career. Guy, you know, all these guys sicken me. Anyway, so here he is more on torture. If you weren't sickened enough already, I know that this program 
has saved lives. I know we've disrupted plots. But what you're essentially saying is some people need to be tortured. No, I did not say that. I did not you're say that. You're telling that. me that I the enhanced that. interrogation... I did not say that. We do not torture... Listen to me. Well, you, you, Look, you call it in the book enhanced interrogation you, Well, that's what we call it. That's no, a euphemism. Well, I'm not having a semantic debate with you. I'm, I'm telling you what I believe. Anybody ever die in the interrogation program? No. <laughs> You're sure of that. Drinks a glass no. of water. In this program that you and I are talking about, no. Oh. Have you ever seen any of these interrogations done? No. Didn't you feel like it was your responsibility to know what I, you were I signing off on? I, I, I'm not a voyeur. I understand what I was signing off on. Lose any sleep over it? Yeah, of course you do. Of course you lose sleep over it. You're on, dude. You're on new territory, but that's not the point. No, yeah. come on, Ben. You, now, are you with me? The guy's a clown. I think I don't, oh, guy's a clown. I think guy. I mean, look, he, he's lying. And the, I mean, if you, I just imagine if Scott Pelley's the prosecutor and you're on the jury. Oh, and he, guilty, reaches, guilty, he drinks guilty, that water. You're like, oh, please. Come like on. when he's like, oh, yeah. yeah. And he drinks the water. Like the program. All... The program. Anybody die? Uh, the program we're talking about? No. <laughs> no, no, no. And put all that stuff aside. Okay, put the antics aside. The drinking the water, the clear lies, the all that stuff. And he said, "Did anybody die in this program?" And the answer Tenet gave was no, pause, 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 in the program that you and I are talking about right now. Now, who doesn't think that that's an answer for, yes, a lot of people died, in a program we're going to call something slightly different? <laughs> okay. I mean, so what he's saying there, Tenet is saying there, in case you didn't put, put it together, let me connect the dots for you, because he was you know, accused of not connecting the dots before 9-11. We tortured people to death. And now he's talking about a violation of honor and trust and integrity when it came to his political career. I have no use for this man. Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for sticking around for the very end of the show for the uh, big announcement I mentioned at the very beginning here. Um, first of all, thanks to Awesome, who produced this uh, episode, doing a fantastic job, as he always does. Um, so just a quick background information. For those of you who don't know, uh, this is relevant to the announcement today. Um, this show, as you can tell is a compilation show put together from lots of different clips lots of different sources uh and each week we try to do a different topic basically and uh and if if one person were to try to gather all the material from all the different places all by themselves it would be a huge job you know it's it'd be really hard to do and so from the very beginning of this show about two and a half years ago we have been implementing a system to try to get the listeners involved, actually helping to produce the show by sending in clips for us to use. And the way we propose that people do that is, you know, if you like this show, then you probably listen to other shows as well. And so while you listen to your other shows, why not just make a note of, you know, hey, that sounded like something good that could go on the best of the left. I'll make a note of it and send it in later, you know, when in your free time, either send us information about the clip and we can go find it ourselves and edit out 
uh, the segment you're referring to, or we've actually tried to give you the uh, the information and the knowledge and even uh, access to the uh, software downloads so that you could edit clips yourselves, you know, audio editing software you can download, put the show in the editor, clip out the section you want, and email us the clip just like that. And uh, so over the years, that's how we've done it. People have taken advantage of this system. They've been a great help to the show, sending in lots of clips, and and it's uh, worked to a certain extent, but not as well as we hoped, frankly. And in retrospect, I think I should have known a long time ago that it wouldn't work. And the reason is I, I've come to the conclusion that it's just flat out against people's nature to to work in that way, to have the desire to help out the show, have the desire to send in clips uh, for the show, but to be expected to do it in their everyday routine and listen to their regular shows and then remember to send in a clip and then actually act on it. And I know this because for nearly the entire time the show's been on the air, I've been collecting most of the clips used and I could do that because I listened to many, many hours of political talk radio every day and when I would hear something good, I would think, oh, that would be something good for the show and even I would sometimes be too lazy to say, oh, I should make a note of that, but I don't have a notepad right here. What am I going to do? You know, write it on my hand and... So if I struggle with it, how could I possibly expect anyone else to do it? So so that's the old system, and it's worked, but it's difficult. Um, I know many, many people who may be interested in helping just can't, can't get into that groove. They can't get into that system, and I don't blame you. But that's why I'm so excited about the new system. And the new system will allow people to volunteer their time the way people should be able to volunteer your time. Uh, the way that's supposed to work, if you want to volunteer for a, you know, any, any cause you want, you should be able to say, look, I want to volunteer 30 minutes, I want to sit down, I want to do it, and then I want to be done, and I want to move on with my life. And that's exactly what you'll be able to do now. So... We have kind of unofficially partnered with a website called everyzing.com. I've been in contact with these people. They helped me set up this new system. They have, you know, they've been a great help. Uh, and they will, from this point forward, be a fantastic tool for us to use for our purposes, gathering clips for the show and making great progressive podcasts. What every Zing has done has utilized really advanced uh, technology that allows them to automatically transcribe audio from audio and video that's posted online. And their specialty is podcasts, which makes them perfect for us. So, like, what's the big deal about that? The big deal is that search engines on the internet search for text that's all they can search for they can search for keywords and strings of words all in text 
And so if you want to search for audio or video, the only thing that will allow you to search for that is if the audio and video is tagged with text. You may be familiar with the tagging system and used in you know, every popular website ever has tags. But now, instead of tags, they can actually transcribe the entire text from radio shows. And since all of the radio shows that we use to make the show uh, publish their shows via podcast as well as on the radio, this website, Everything, is able to subscribe and then transcribe every episode that they post in their podcast feeds. So what this means for us is we can take any show we like, search just within that show for keywords related to news and politics, and instantly find every instance within a particular show where they mention our particular keyword. So say you want to search the Rachel Maddow show for economics, you just go and you'll see our search bar i'll explain this in a second find our search bar type in economics and it'll take you right to the web page that shows every time rachel maddow has said the word economics in history you know ever since they started transcribing the show so what you need to do to get involved in this is go to bestofleftpodcast.com and write at the top in the middle is a tab there are lots of tabs home community support the show and so on and right in the middle is find and send in clips and that tab's been there before it's just it before it just said send in clips and that's where we had all the information of how to send us clips we hoped you would find yourself now we've integrated every way to find clips yourself and so uh, all you have to do is go to that webpage and all the information you need is there. Four and a half incredibly easy steps for finding the clips for the show uh, written out uh, are right there. And that explains every step from how to get the clips to how to send them in. And beyond that, our you know, incredibly overworked and generous webmaster, Billy from Oregon, has even done a video tutorial explaining exactly how this system works and showing how easy it is. So, um, just as, you know, I, I gave the example of finding a clip uh, for Rachel Maddow, and, and right on this same page are search boxes. They're right there, and we've picked our favorite shows that we love to use to bring clips to the best of the left. And, you know, you can go off and find other shows if you if you want. We fully encourage that. But we've made it really easy to find clips within the shows we already use. And you can do it right from our website. So everything from Rachel Maddow and Tom Hartman and, you know, Air America shows like that to uh, NPR shows like On the Media... Um, La Show, anything, you just pick the show you are interested in listening to. You type in the keyword you're interested in finding, and within minutes, if that, you will be searching through segments of these shows 
and you will find exactly what you're looking for and you can go right to the point in the show where they mention the keyword that you've typed in and trust me from experience this cuts down the amount of time to find clips to just a fraction of you know listening to a show naturally and trying to find clips in the middle so really if you want to you know donate 30 minutes of your time I guarantee you could find, you know, not just one, but two or three or more clips in that short amount of time, good enough to be uh, included in the Best of Left podcast. And, you know, our ability to do our job will just be so much easier. The more clips we get, the higher quality the show is going to be because we won't, you know, we'll, we'll have more to choose from to make each episode and this is going to be good all around and not not just that it's fun try it out you'll see that it's fun and uh and i really hope that you'll uh at least take the time to check out the new system and then if you if you have the time and you think that the best of left is a show worth you know donating a few minutes of your time to uh to help us do what we do check out the system and uh and help us find some clips so that is part of the benefit of the uh, of our integration with everything. Uh, the other small part, just for your benefit, is uh, if you ever want to find an old clip in our show, you know, you think, oh, six months ago I heard some clip and this interview with some guy talking about whatever. Uh, what was that again? We actually have an integrated search box with every zing where you can search the best of the left podcast for text and that's right on the sidebar of the website type in anything you want and it'll search our entire archive to help you find that one elusive talking point you heard so long ago and that's just a nice useful tool aside from that i just wanted to remind you that uh, again the podcast awards are coming up. We are getting the best of the left nominated for the podcast awards. Uh, come hell or high water, September 15th, mark your calendar. That is when the nomination process starts. So uh, on or slightly after September 15th, go to podcastawards.com, find the news and politics category, and enter in all the information for best of the left podcast, including your uh, comments about why you like the show, why you have chosen to take the time to nominate the show, and we will get ourselves nominated for an award, and that'll be lots of fun for everybody. Um, and then, of course, every other way to support the show. Uh, if, you're, if you're ever curious how to support the show besides getting involved and sending in clips for us, uh, go to the Support the Show tab on the website, and that makes it very easy to... Uh, send us uh, customer reviews in iTunes, where to dig the show on dig.com, and uh, vote for the show in Podcast Alley. Anything we want you to do, that's where it is, and we greatly appreciate your help on that. So that is it for today. My name's Jay, coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the border, and more importantly, the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., this has been the Best of the Left Podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleftpodcast.com. Bye, bye.
Just a fond farewell to a friend. 